Thank you so much. Right, I'll just carry on then. Um, we are continuing in our series going through Luke's gospel this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, um, whether that's a paper one or one on your phone, can I encourage you to get it out? Because uh, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 22, um, I think it'll be of real benefit. The words will appear on our screen in the new NIV, New International Version. However, I'm going to jump around quite a lot, so I think having the passage in front of you is a really good thing. So I encourage you, um, on your phone or on a paper Bible, Luke 8.22. And whilst you're finding it, this morning we're going to be looking at two encounters that people had with Jesus that both help us to answer the question, who is Jesus? And what is he like? This morning we're going to see that Jesus has authority over the forces of nature and the forces of evil, and how those encounters demonstrated to the disciples that this teacher guy that they were following was God himself. As I was praying and preparing this morning, um, we asked the Lord, as, as preachers, we say, Lord, what do you want to say at this time to this room full of people through this passage? And what I think the Lord wants to say to folk who are here this morning is, trust me. Jesus' power and his caring character are clear in these passages. I think he invites us to trust him. And that's the same Jesus that we're going to read about, who is with us today, who is meeting us even now as we read about him. Hopefully you'll have found Luke chapter 8, verse 22. My friend Rachel is going to come up and read it for us just now. Thank you so much, Rachel. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into the boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of Gerasene, Jeres which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this to the town and countryside. 
and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of Gerasim asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Thank you, pal. Thank you. Do keep your Bibles open in front of you as we kind of dip around into different passages, different scriptures this morning. So we see in these passages, Jesus has authority over the forces of nature and over the spiritual forces of evil. So we'll begin with the first passage, starting at verse 22, verses, uh, yeah, 22 to 25, Jesus calming the storm, which I think some of us will know this passage so well already. Some will know it inside out. But actually, if that's the case, if that's you, could I ask you to just take a moment, picture the scene, and maybe if you'd like to, you could close your eyes if that helps. There might be something that God wants to say to you new through it this morning. The disciples set off from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. It's pretty big. It's an eight-mile-wide row or sail. And during the crossing, Jesus is taking a nap. He's been busy. He's been teaching the crowds. He's been performing miracles. And Jesus was fully human. So I think it's legit that he needs a rest. So we can imagine there's Jesus napping on a cushion, Mark tells us, at the back of the boat. And uh, the experienced sailors amongst the disciples, those who used to be the fishermen, uh, they know what they're doing. They're taking charge of the crossings. The master gets a rest. The experienced ones are doing it. Great, great. Until a violent storm suddenly engulfs them. Do you know what? I had a whole paragraph here about the weather conditions of the ancient Middle East and how the depressed sea of Galilee causes squalls when the hot, uh, but I cut it for time. Picture, if you will, the ex-fisherman battling to keep control. The other disciples feeling a bit useless, but frantically doing whatever they're told to try and cope with this huge squall. You, know, you there, pull that rope. You, grab that oar, try and keep her steady. You, sit still, don't touch anything. But they're panicking. These men, they've been fishing all their lives. They were taken out onto that boat by their fathers, their uncles. They know what that fishing, and they know what fishing and they know what that sea is like. But they're panicking. They know that they're in trouble. And they're not worrying for nothing. Luke tells us in verse 23, the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. So what went through their minds at this point? What was their, what do we do about this? They go to wake Jesus, okay, why? Were they just after another pair of hands to pull on ropes? There seems to be something more than that going on. What exactly are they expecting Jesus to do? Luke records them, waking him with a warning that we might give any passenger, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Get up, everyone ready to dive overboard. 
Matthew and Mark, in their gospel versions of this story, they record them waking Jesus definitely as a cry for help. Matthew 8.25 says, Lord, save us. Okay, so they're expecting him to do something here to save them. And Mark, don't you care if we drown? Which is a bit, you know, don't you care? I love that the different gospel writers seem to have recorded different levels of desperation. Whatever words each of the disciples shouted at Jesus over the sound of the waves in their panic, Jesus wakes, and in verse 24 of Luke 8, Jesus rebuked the wind and raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Even if you know that story inside out, what? Jesus did what and and what happened? This is pretty huge, right? But in in that line, the word rebuked caught my attention. Rebuked. Is it Jesus telling off the weather? Does that seem right? I mean, whether or not we would say that the storm was misbehaving, Jesus' rebuke is definitely a putting it in its place. And the place is subject to Jesus' authority. This is a miracle of Jesus controlling the weather with a voice command. Yeah, take that, Alexa. It's a clear demonstration. Jesus has authority over wind and raging sea. This bloke, this man, this human teacher they've been following around can speak to a storm and cancel it. The disciples in verse 25 respond, as I suspect many of us might have, essentially saying, who is this guy? Which isn't reasonable, sorry, it is reasonable when you've just seen your mate and your teacher save your lives by speaking to a storm. But when they say, who is this guy, it's kind of rhetorical. Because if they knew their scriptures, and as good Jewish men, they, most of them would have done, they'd have known that having the authority to calm a storm is something that God does. It belongs to only one person, God himself. Psalm 89, which I'm making Alistair on the screen work hard this morning. Thank you, mate. Psalm 89 verse 9 says, You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. That's God's job. It's his authority. It's his power to do those things. And Psalm 107 uh, tells the whole story, which I haven't asked Alistair to put on the screen because it's really long, but go and read Psalm 107. God calms storms. Only one has the authority to do that. So those faithful Jews who knew their Psalms, they knew that Jesus has just done what only God can do. Which means the answer to, in Luke 8.25, their fearful, amazed question, who is this, is the one who wind and waves obey is God. Again, if this isn't news to you this morning, try and imagine for a moment what it must have felt like when it was. Try and imagine what it must have felt like to be in the boat and realize that that bloke is doing God stuff. It's pretty huge. Jesus is God. God the Son. Okay, so huge theological statement and realization, um, but what is he like? Well, he's mighty. He can put the forces of nature in place with a word. But also, 
He cares. He answers desperate cries for help. A good sermon should have an application or a lesson to it. So what's the lesson or application here? Uh, well, I suppose if you're ever on a boat, um, pray. No, I think it's uh, pay attention to just how powerful Jesus is. The same Jesus that we're in a relationship with now, that many of us have invited into our hearts to be the Lord of our lives. This same Jesus is the one who can calm storms, who can change nature. And also, that he's good, that he's loving and caring. We can trust his strength, and we can trust his goodness. And on that point of trust, Jesus turns to the disciples, and as Luke records it in verse 25, says to them, where's your faith? Does that seem a little harsh? Oh, sorry, teacher, I didn't know you could control the weather. Except they sort of did, didn't they? Isn't that why they woke him? The, the do-something came from somewhere. They, they half knew, they suspected, their guts told them that Jesus could do something about it. Sort of a, Jesus, I don't really know what you're going to do about this, but can you do something about this? Um, I was once in a very serious car accident. There was me uh, driving my car and going around a corner, and a big van going around in the opposite direction, going around the same corner, uh, coming at each other about 60 miles an hour each, and the van didn't go around the corner. So he drove into the side of my car at uh, such a speed that it sort of crushed, welded the doors all down one side of my car. Um, it popped off my rear axle, that flew off, it spun off into another field and stood up like the Eiffel Tower. It was pretty amusing, really. Um, even after that, the van had been going so fast that having sort of ground the length of my car, it then hit the car behind me head on at such a speed that it pretty much completely crushed it. And there were two women in that car, I think there were three passengers, but two of them, two women, um, had miraculous stories of surviving. I mean, it was, it was horrendous. Uh, we had the air ambulance come out and um, do surgery on one of them at the side of the road and how she survived being... Yeah. It's graphic. She, she was put back together and flown to hospital, and she survived, and it was wonderful. Um, and then an older lady in the back of the car, it turns out they took her into hospital as well to, to look after her, but it turns out she had such serious internal bleeding that they caught, I understand, fairly miraculously, and were able to protect her and, and nurse her back to health. Um, yeah, it was, it was miraculous, thank you, Lord. And I walked away with, on the day, just a scratch on my head. Uh, people were astonished. They kept saying, were, were you the guy in that car there? <laughs> yeah, sit down, <laughs> said the paramedic. Um, I was just trying to help. But I remember vividly the split second when I was going around the corner and I realized that the van wasn't turning. And it, it was a split second. In that split second... I prayed a deep, faithful, profound prayer for Jesus to save me and to look after everyone else in the situation. And it, it sounded like, ah! But I promise you it was a prayer. I chatted to a mechanic who, who had a look at my car afterwards. You know, you've got to go through the whole insurance business. And the mechanic said to me, this guy hit your car at the strongest possible point. Six inches in one direction, he'd have hit your head on. 120 mile an hour combined speed, you'd not have made that. But six inches the other way, he wouldn't have gone down the length of my car and been slowed down, and the two ladies who pulled through, no chance. 
you could, I suppose, translate my prayer as, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do, but could you do something? That's what I was feeling. I knew I needed him to do, to be in charge of whatever was going to happen next. And he was gracious to me and the other drivers involved who, like I say, last I heard, recovered amazingly. I actually found out, because it was in the news, that they were part of a church in Cooper who'd rallied around and started praying for them in their recovery. Love those sorts of stories. But Jesus' question to the disciples, where is your faith? Does that seem unfair? Because they, they sort of did trust Jesus, enough to wake him, to say, I don't know what you're going to do, but do something. Was Jesus expecting more faith from them? Well, if so, what? Maybe that they had gone to wake him without being so panicked, you know, been trusted and chill. Lord, um, just so you know, we're all about to die, uh, so if you wouldn't mind having a word. Or was he expecting them to trust that even though they couldn't see him at work, I mean, he's asleep in the back, he's not at work, but he's with them? Does that count for something? Just having him with them enough to save them? Maybe not save them from a storm, but save them through a storm? I don't know what he was expecting of them. I don't know what more he was asking. I think he was probably pleased that they asked him, though. I said at the beginning, I think Jesus' invitation to us this morning is to trust me. That's trust him. And I think for anyone who particularly needs to hear that this morning, I think it's okay to say, Lord, this situation is hard, or this thing you're asking of me is hard, or even... I think that the Jesus that we are in the presence of today is strong enough to save and that he cares enough to save. That he's worthy of our trust. It's safe with him. And if that is how we saw the world, if our trust in Jesus, if you, if you like our faith, but if our trust in Jesus was that rock solid, how would that change the struggles we'd face? I'm not saying it would take us out of struggles, but how would it change how we journeyed through them? the challenges, the fears. If we saw those difficulties from a place of trust in Jesus, how would they go differently for us? Our second story is about Jesus bringing freedom to a man who was oppressed by demons, an army of them, in fact. And whereas the first passage showed Jesus having great authority over the forces of nature, This glimpse of Jesus' ministry shows him having great authority over evil spirits, even when outnumbered thousands to one, which is a really important fact that the gospel writers want us to get about who this Jesus is. Just say a couple of words as introduction. The demonic is a a topic that seems to divide Christians. There are some who think that the supernatural doesn't exist, that any talk of angels is silly, and that talk of demons is a tragically naive misunderstanding of mental illness or other things. Uh, it's a Western post- post-enlightenment view. And the culture around us presumes that view. I also used to hold that passionately myself. That's one extreme. The other extreme is to be a little too interested in the demonic. To be looking for the activity of demons wherever we go and trying to cast out people's bad life choices because there must be a demon attached to that person influencing them. I 
don't think that's usually the case. To the Enlightenment anti-supernaturalists, though, I would say this. The Bible's worldview unashamedly includes demons, angels, powers and principalities, and if we dismiss those, we are reinterpreting the world in a way that is not recognizable to God's word, the Bible. I think there's a challenge for us this morning. Well, anytime we come across something supernatural in the Bible, the challenge is we can't just bolt on Jesus to a secular worldview. I just don't think it works. To accept Jesus, to believe that he is God the Son, is a package deal. It means taking seriously the worldview, the perspective that he brings with him. And crucially, Jesus believed in demons. I reckon he still does as well. If they weren't real, if they hadn't been real all along, then Jesus, who was God the Son, could have really helped us out in these gospel passages by correcting the disciples every time they came across a situation like this. No, 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 guys, this isn't spiritual. No, 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 this is, this is just a type of illness. We're going to pray a healing prayer here. But he didn't. Jesus helped people, a lot of people, with natural illnesses, and he helped people with supernatural oppression as well. And lastly, on this kind of introduction reflection, um, after the Bible and Jesus, or Jesus and the Bible, in order of reliability, I personally have had enough experiences of the demonic that I'm convinced these supernatural evil beings do exist and are active. I'm not going to stand here and tell you stories this morning because I don't think that would be helpful. But what I do think it would be helpful to do is just let you know that I feel no awkwardness, no, no weird question in standing before you and saying, um, no, I think this is real. I've seen enough. And the one thing I want to say before I leave my experience is this, uh, it and it lines up with today's passage. Jesus has authority over demons. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to say that again. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, that was nice, wasn't it? Went all Pentecostal for a split second. Hallelujah. No one's shouting preach, though, so that's fine. Okay, to our passage then. No sooner has that boat finally reached the shore. Just remember what they've just gone through, right? A storm that's nearly killed them. They're probably on the shaken up side of things. The boat finally reaches the shore, and then a poor man, who's clearly in a very bad way, runs up to them naked, screaming, and probably trailing bits of broken chain from his wrists and ankles. And his greeting is, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Which is intense. But... Right away, this man, or rather the demons speaking through him, is answering the question that the disciples have just asked. Who is this son of the Most High God? And looking at the interaction between Jesus' authority and these spiritual beings, the very fact that a legion of demons is making begging requests of Jesus shows where the true power lies in this encounter, this confrontation, if you like. There's an army of spiritual evil facing one man, and this army bows and pleads before him because Jesus Christ is Lord. This is God the Son they're facing, and these spiritual beings know it. They recognize Jesus' authority straight away, which I think is part of what Luke wants us to get from this passage. Jesus has authority 
And evil knows and respects that, even if it doesn't like him. Okay, Jesus' authority, great. Let's pause and have a little look about how Jesus chooses to interact. What can we learn about his motivations in this confrontation? What are his priorities? What is he like? When Jesus finds himself confronted by a legion of evil spirits, do we picture him coming in all spiritual guns blazing? Ha ha, holy pew pew, have some of that darkness, I have light. Probably not with that voice either. Verses 28 and 29 tell us what Jesus actually did. The guy runs up to him, screams, shouts, makes his really intense entrance. Because Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man straight away, first thing Jesus seems to do is come in and say, evil, leave him alone. All that Jesus has done is begin by commanding them to leave the guy alone. Okay, well, a bit later on, verse 30 Uh, In fact, next verse, the demons beg Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Oh, I had such a lovely paragraph about the abyss that I had to cut for time. Ask me about Revelation, ask Jesse about Revelation 20 and 21. He'd love to have that chat with you at Pub Church. Legion, they replied. Jesus asked him, what's his name? Okay, I checked the Greek here. Jesus asked him, singular. So Jesus' motivations, firstly, He's saying, evil, leave this guy alone. Secondly, in a second interaction, Jesus doesn't speak to the evil. He says, mate, what's your name? He's talking to the guy. The fact that the spiritual army answers, has control of his mouth, that that wasn't his intention. That's just what's coming up next. But Jesus doesn't say, come on then, army of evil, I can take you. He's addressing the guy. He's giving him dignity. And Jesus does proceed to get rid of them. But if we're looking at my favorite question, what is Jesus like? Jesus is more focused on loving and freeing a man who is oppressed than on picking a fight with evil that oppressed him. I believe that so much I'm going to tell you again. Jesus is more focused on loving and freeing a man who is oppressed than he is on picking a fight with the evil that oppressed him. And this guy, he was clearly in such a bad way. For a long time, he's been kept from clothing, from living normally. He was driven to live amongst dead bodies in tombs rather than a home. He's been isolated by the demons. He's been seized by these spirits with a strength that can snap chains in Mark's gospel. Um, This poor guy, poor guy. Jesus has the power and the authority to set him free, and Jesus wants to set him free. That's what Jesus is like as we're reading this passage. The demons beg to be sent into a herd of pigs. I read a few commentaries, and commentators suggest that demons would apparently prefer to live in uh, pigs than in nothing at all, and anything rather than the abyss, Revelation 20. And for reasons that Luke doesn't share with us, Jesus lets them, gives them permission to go into the herd. And in verse 33, we see the dramatic result of the demons going into those pigs. The herd rushed down, thank you, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, in Mark's version of this, uh, he adds the detail that there were 2,000 pigs. Brilliant, thank you so much. Around 2,000 in number. A large herd indeed. And we might wonder, why on earth did Jesus allow this to happen? It can't just be that he doesn't like pigs very much. Why did the gospel writers feel the need to make sure that we knew this detail? 
to know about the large herd's sudden demise. What was in Luke, Matthew, and Mark's thinking when they thought, we've got to write down about the pigs? Here's a possible reason. If they hadn't, might we be tempted to read this and say, ah, this is just the healing of a mental health issue. Yeah, natural, non-demonic, that's what, that's what this was. And I want to say, natural, non-demonic mental health issues are very real. It's not that every time someone has mental illness, there's spiritual evil behind it. But the inclusion of this supernatural feature in this story, the demons begging to go into the pigs, Jesus giving them permission, and the pigs' sudden dash of death, that adds an element of, no, something more was going on here. And it wasn't just that he screamed. He'd been screaming for years. It says so in the other passages. That detail of, huh, okay, that conversation Jesus had the pigs, what happened next, that adds something both for us reading the story today and for those looking on at the time. The point that Luke is making is clearly Jesus has authority over supernatural evil. And the onlookers in verses 34 and 35, they respond by rushing off, thank you so much, rushing off and reporting this in the town and countryside. There's maybe a little bit of, it wasn't my fault, honest boss. And the townsfolk come out to see. And what they find when they come out to this patch is the screaming naked grave-dwelling guy is fully restored, is in his right mind, he's dressed, that was unusual, and he sat at Jesus' feet. I talked about being sat at Jesus' feet a couple of weeks ago. Honestly, I think it's the best place to be. This guy was close to Jesus. He was learning from Jesus. Great. So the townsfolk, they come out, they find the guy there, and what, exp what response might we expect from this? Joy? Excitement? I've got some questions, Jesus. I want to learn more about who you are. They said along the lines of, get away from me. Fear. Which is such a shame, isn't it? They were about to miss out on the greatest opportunity any of us ever have, meeting Jesus. A quick tag out. What do you do if you have a friend who you would love for them to discover that Jesus is real and that he wants to get to know them and to heal and to save them, to bring them back into a relationship with God, but your friend isn't ready to try praying yet, isn't ready to meet with Jesus? Can I suggest to you that you gently, lovingly, just be. Just walk alongside them in life. Tell them honest stories. Don't need to hype anything up. Jesus is strong enough. Tell them honest stories about what Jesus has done in your life, about who he is in terms of your experience. Your friend might not be ready to dive in and do a Bible study, but they may be up for, in fact, I think they'd be likely to hear real-life stories from someone they know and respect. And if you're here today and you don't call yourself a Christian, if you're trying church out, then wonderful, you are so welcome, friends. If this whole thing has weirded you out, and it was a fun topic to come into for that, can I suggest that you as well find someone who you know, who seems to know Jesus, and just ask them about them. Ask them about their life and their experience of God. Which is exactly what Jesus did. In verse 39... Sorry, verse 38. The now freed, formerly demonized man really wants to go with Jesus, really wants to spend more time with him, as you would, right? And Jesus says no. It's not cruelty. It's not rejection. 
Jesus wants this man to stay and be an astonishing witness to God's power and God's character. Jesus says in verse 39, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Look, if these guys won't have me here, you, you tell them what happened. You make sure they know what God has done for you. Jesus leaves the Gerasenes when they ask him to, but he doesn't leave them without the opportunity to discover God. This living signpost is left behind to point people to the God who loves them. And did you spot? Tell them how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told her all over town how much Jesus has done for you. Same thing. Who is Jesus? Luke is making it crystal clear. Jesus is God. Jesus is God the Son, the Most High. Okay, and what's he like? He cares. Luke is recording for us events that demonstrate that this amazing teacher who walked the earth a couple of thousand years ago had authority over nature, had authority over literal armies of evil spirits, and in the coming weeks we'll see his authority over sickness and death as well. This man was, and after his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, he still is God the Son. And as I close, I want to suggest to you what I think God wants to say to us this morning. Jesus is worthy of trust because he has huge authority. And he's worthy of trust because he has a huge heart. Jesus cared for the disciples when they cried out for help. He cared for the man oppressed by evil spirits. He even cared for the garrison town enough to not abandon them, though they tried to make him do that. And friends, he cares for us when things are coming against us, whether that's a storm, evil activity, or anything else. Which is pretty essential to know about Jesus, to be able to glorify him and worship him. But I think Jesus wants us to do more than know it. I think he wants us to do more than know that he's trustworthy. I think he wants to directly speak to some of us and say, you can trust me. You can trust me. I'm strong enough. I care enough. He's good. So, as we wrap up, if that's you, can I invite you to consider these Bible passages not as facts to understand about Jesus, who he is, but opportunities to invite him in. In fact, if you're able to, can I invite you to stand? And we'll pray, shall we? Let's pray. Just take a moment to give you space in your own heart before I start speaking again. Lord Jesus. If you're having a conversation with the Lord already, you carry on. You ignore me. But um, for the rest of us, Lord, I see what you did for them. I see what you did for these people. Thank you for the record of what you did for these people. I see what you're like. 
and I trust you, Jesus. Or perhaps, help me to trust you, Jesus. Would you show your loving, saving power in my own situation? And would you come, Jesus Christ, who is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, would you come into my life in a new way? I give all that I have and all that I am to you.